Matthew 22. Um, keep your fingers there because we will come to our text at the end of the sermon. Okay. We continue our series on Christians, the Christian and politics. And the result of this series, I hope, will be that each of us will be able to think with a consistently Christian view of the world, including a non-ideological understanding of politics place within it. We need to understand that the place to begin is not with anthropology, that is looking at humanity, okay, the issue, issue of humanness, but cosmology, the issue of creation. In other words, a basic worldview. And this worldview needs to be re- uh, rooted in the redemptive narrative that we find in scripture. Well, as soon as I say redemptive, I think most of us think in terms of salvation, usually only in terms of salvation, and the coming of Jesus into the world. But as we've seen, the biblical narrative consists of four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Thus, the place to begin is at creation. If you've listened to me at all over the years, you will note that beginning at the beginning is really important for me. Not in the middle of the story, not a couple chapters after the beginning. We must begin at the beginning. As we've seen in this series and elsewhere, the doctrine of creation is not primarily about the nature of creation, but about the God who creates. I think oftentimes we are distracted because it's like getting into the evolution, creation debate, and the focus should be on the God who creates. And secondly, the doctrine of creation is not so much about origin, but its purpose. Why did God create the world? What is its final end? We are told in scripture that the God who creates is good, and we are told that God's creation was good. And God saw all, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. After creating humanity in his image, God gave humans a twofold mandate. We've seen this. One upward, uh, which is trust, trust in God, and one downward, that is dominion. So we have been given a responsibility, a stewardship, to take care of God's creation. And this dominion involves culture-shaping activities. And these activities conform to God's intentions. In other words, God put us here, he gave us an order, we are to have dominion, and that involves culture. But Adam and Eve rebelled, and they were cast from God's presence. But the command, the mandate remains. We are to have dominion and we are to trust God. As broken as we are, as broken as creation is, we still have this twofold mandate. Going out into the world, Adam and Eve and those after them, including us, discovered, and we continue to discover, the possibilities that God has built into his creation. So if you look at Deuteronomy, for example, as Moses is talking about them going into the promised land, that they were going to have to dig copper out of the ground. It doesn't just sort of pop out. It's not just there on the surface. You have to go in and discover it. In the same way, God has put us into this world, and we are to discover the things that he wants us to do. Now, oftentimes when you talk about the beginning and culture, people think agriculture. But there's so much more than this. There's the visual arts, there's music, literature, natural sciences, social institutions, political institutions. What this means is that part of human culture, 
under the creation mandate is politics. So politics is, in fact, a part of creation. But creation is fallen, as we know. Everything is tainted by sin's destructive power. Everything, including culture on every level. But the story that begins with creation does not end with the fall. It continues with redemption, the coming of Jesus, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just a side note here. We need to recognize, remember, that creation and the fall are cosmic in nature. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. That's it. It's cosmic. It's the cosmos. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? The cosmos became fallen. In Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, cosmos, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Well, then this raises a question, at least for some. Has the fall completely destroyed or canceled out the goodness of creation? We saw that God saw that his creation was good. Is that now totally wiped out because of sin? Does that mean that politics and government, as part of the culture within the dominion mandate, that those are just a wash? They need to just be forgotten. No. An emphasis on creation as foundational for understanding how we, God's bearing, image-bearing creatures, are supposed to live our lives includes our political lives. We as God's people, let's set that aside, we as those made in the image of God, who have been given the mandate, are in fact to be obedient, and we are in fact to live out his command in our political lives. The problem, though, is that many Christians are not prepared to accept this emphasis on the creation order. Simply put, in my opinion, they are unwilling to begin at the beginning. There are a number of reasons for this, but I'll focus on what I think is the reason. And that is, in the last several centuries, the focus has been away from creation to what is now known as nature. Okay. So instead of referring to the world, the cosmos, as creation, it's referred to as nature. And then you have the laws of nature. So you can study nature using the various disciplines. Uh, physics, not metaphysics, but physics, uh, chemistry, biology, the sciences. And what we see is that nature, as modern people see it, operates automatically based on these laws, and you don't need any human interaction whatsoever. You don't need any humans to implement anything. You have the laws of gravity, thermodynamics, photosynthesis, and more. And you know what? These continue to function with or without us. Okay. It's only one more step to go to say they function with or without us or without God. So the cosmos, God's creation, is now simply nature, which runs on rules, don't need human beings who bear God's image, and ultimately, you don't need God either. 
And this is contrary to what we find in scripture. I've mentioned this a number of times over the years, and yet I think it's still a struggle for us. Scripture holds that all events are personal actions on the part of a personal, accountable agent or agents, beginning with creation. So as one writer put it, God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous laws of nature. The universe is not a giant mechanism, like a clock, which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world, nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to, or, yeah, growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. This means that the universe, the cosmos, is inescapably personal. There can be no phenomenon or event in creation that is independent from God. One of the hymns we sing here is, I sing the mighty power of God. And one of the lines says, and the moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. And I can remember very distinctly, years ago, making the case, or trying to make the case, um, that in fact, that's what happens. It is because God has the moon shine full at certain phases that it does. And I remember very distinctly someone in the congregation snickering. It's like, like, come on, Damon, we know better than that. We know because of the way that things are set up. And the idea that God is personally involved every moment of every day seems so foreign to us. Cosmic personalism affirms that all things have their being and meaning in terms of the person and plan of God. It absolutely denies the possibility of self-sufficiency for any aspect of the universe. Okay. So one could argue, okay, so Damon, you're saying it's either cosmic personalism, God is personally involved in everything, or it is a question of impersonal processes. And then the question would be, where are you going with this statement? I mean, how does this fit into what we're looking at? If you replace creation with nature, the result is you have a split between nature and culture. See, culture is part of creation. God created humanity and gave them a mandate. This is what you're supposed to do. It's called culture. Okay? But if you make creation nature, then you lose that mandate but we still have culture. So what you have to do is, in fact, have culture as not connected to nature. Nature then becomes simply a mechanism, a deterministic system accessible to science. Whereas culture, on the other hand, is it's more like metaphysical, you, know, you get into uh, morality and things like that, but it is the human being, the individual, who chooses what is right. They are seen as self-sufficient and autonomous. And again, this is fundamentally different from what we find in Scripture. But again, many Christians do not begin at the beginning. So what ends up happening is the church, or Christians, end up competing with various ideologies when it comes to the matter of redemption. Since we don't start at creation, 
mention the fall and we're sinners, but usually people you know, begin with the story with redemption. So um, as one writer put it, redemption is reduced to giving religious lyrics to secular tunes or replacing or supplementing ordinary labor with prayer. It's just sort of sprinkling some Christian words on things. What redemption is, in fact, and what it does, is it brings to everyday life a purpose. Everyday life, including labor, leisure, liturgy. Once again, because political life is a part of creation, it stands under God's redemption in Jesus Christ. So it can't be seen as neutral or secular. It is something like the rest of us that has fallen and needs to be redeemed. Many Christians do see politics as a secular pursuit with which they may or may not uh, participate or with or without uh, they may not combine some aspects of their faith. How did we get to this place? How did we get to the point where the church has abandoned the idea of creation, has abandoned with it the idea of a dominion mandate? We do the trust thing, or we say we do, but the idea that we are in fact to be involved culturally, how did we get to this place? Well, when creation began to be seen as nature, governed by laws of nature, rather than by the personal infinite God, over time, life began to be split into two parts. Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, the natural versus the supernatural. In a sense, the church retreated into the supernatural realm. We'll talk about the spiritual things and leave everything else to the scientists, uh, to the mathematicians, to the people who know about such things. In a real sense, the church became content with that. And the gospel then was transformed into this very, very narrow message about you need to put your faith in Jesus and then you won't go to hell when you die. Every aspect of everyday life was ultimately abandoned. Science and then ultimately the state was given the authority to call the shots. You save souls, the state will take care of everything else. And various ideologies were more than pleased to accept this bargain. We'll take care of the public stuff, the everyday stuff, and the private stuff, the spiritual stuff, we will leave to the church. But as the story goes, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And when you give him the milk, he's going to ask for a straw. And on it goes. As time went on, the state was seen as giving to the church various freedoms. We will give these to you. Okay? And in many ways, the church was happy to accept this. The result being that followers of traditional religion parenthesis, remnants of a less enlightened age, must limit their, their themselves to the spheres of family, home, and church. And they must stay out of the public square. That belongs to the state. It is the church, Christians, who have family and home and church. It's called privatization. It's a process by which there's a gulf, a huge gulf has been made between the public you and the private you. 
The public world is the world of ideologies, of big institutions. We participate in this, but the, the idea of being unique is sort of lost. You know, if you work for a company that requires you to wear a uniform, you're just like everybody else until casual Friday. Um, but the public world becomes the world of the state, okay, of the government. Okay? So it's not where your identity is found. The private sphere is where you get to be unique. You get to be the real you. You can do your own thing. And in the modern world, that becomes religion. So you can do whatever you want in private, but in public, please do not bring your religious faith. Religion thus is seen as privately engaging, but socially irrelevant. Do not bring it to the public square. As I said, various ideologies were more than pleased to accept this bargain, but not all. Marx asserted that religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a, of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. So there tends to be opposition to religion, opposition to the church. It can take the form of persecution, but I think, in a sense, it can also take the form of privatization. Not, not uh, animosity as such, it's just sort of ign ignoring, just, just you can do whatever you want, you have the freedom of worship. Many Christians are fine with this. If you're alive and not under a rock, you know that we are in the midst of great political turmoil and one of the issues going on is the appointing of a new justice to the Supreme Court. And on Tuesday's broadcast, uh, CNN's Cuomo primetime, the host, Chris Cuomo, who is a Roman Catholic, by the way, stated that the Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, is, quote, different than most Catholics. I think that her faith is by design more central to her value system and her behavior and thoughts than it would be for just an ordinary Catholic. In other words, she's not keeping it private. She's bringing it into the public square. And as a Roman Catholic, Chris Cuomo is offended by this. Del Mar, who was raised a Roman Catholic in a rant this past Friday, said there are two kinds of Catholics, scary and non-scary. The vast majority, non-scary. And what does he mean by a non-scary Catholic? Someone who does not do what the church teaches. Well, that's not non-scary, that's non-Catholic. Okay? After 9-11, uh, some people were very upset, Ken Myers mentioned this, that Muslims in this country said that they were Muslim first and, and American second. And Ken was saying, well, are we not Christians first? And American second? Well, no, that Christian part is seen as something that's to be private. It's a lot I could say here, but first of all, many Christians fail to realize or acknowledge that their faith has anything to say to various ideologies. They almost see them as two neutral things. One is politics and one is religion. And they just don't have anything to say to each other. Many see politics as only secular. And their religious beliefs can be, uh, what is the word, safely, can be safely segregated from, in fact, 
political ideologies. But most importantly, most Christians fail to recognize that we are in a war with idols, those things which have been put in the place of God. I mentioned in the first uh, sermon in this series that the religious nature of human beings can be understood in terms of three biblical rules. First of all, everyone serves a God of some sort, even an atheist. Secondly, everyone is transformed into the image of the God they serve. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 115, Psalm 135, you know, that all things about idols and those who worship them are just like them. We become like the idols that we serve. And lastly, people structure their society in their own image. So you have an idol that you worship, it changes you, and then you turn around and set up society. So ultimately, society is based on the idolatry that you are a part of. So while the church is content, sadly, to deal with spiritual matters, ideologies and the state want to take over. See, you have this split, state over here, church over here, uh, uh, church, you take care of family, you take care of home, you take care of the church, and we'll take care of everything else. But slowly but surely, some would say not so slowly, the church has tried to usurp the position. And why is this? Because ideologies are redemptive by nature. They have a story of redemption. They want to save you. The world is messed up, and here, follow this ideology, belong to this particular state, and you can find redemption or salvation. Many Christians fail to recognize this. They think that a political ideology is simply a neutral account of reality. It may be that, in fact, they don't see it as neutral because they have embraced a part of that ideology without recognizing that they are engaging in idolatry. I think also it's because many Christians fail to see the story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. I would argue that you could, you could say that what we face in the world today is what I would call evangelism wars. Evangelism is usually a word, that's for the church. That's what, and we actually don't want the church to do that, proselyting, you know, keep it private, don't try to convince people of your position. But in fact, the state and ideologies are evangelizing as well. They are telling people, here's the good news. Your life is messed up, follow us, and we will lead you to the promised land. The state promises salvation, the good life, and more, and so do ideologies. One thing we need to recognize about idols and idolatry, they will, in fact, not tolerate any competition. No challenges. You'll notice oftentimes in our society that people who speak of tolerance can be some of the most intolerant people. Um, Ideologies are the same way. They will broach no competition whatsoever. They stand against the creator. They stand in his place, or they imagine they do, and they want to retain their position. And so their answer is either to eliminate the competition or to render it irrelevant. Just push it to the sidelines where it can be ignored. I don't think I would go as far as Nietzsche 
who described the state as the coldest of all cold monsters. But consider the bargain, giving religious faith and beliefs to the spheres of family, church, and home, and ask yourself, has the state lived up to this? I would say, for the most part, it has not. And what does this mean for the people of God? Better stated, perhaps more correctly stated, what does this mean for the church? We need to be careful that our thinking, so influenced by the surrounding culture, not to be so individualistic to forget that we belong to a community, a body of believers with whom we share an identity. So what, in fact, does this mean for the church? Well, let's start with a basic question. What is the church? Let me give a brief illustration here. In 1959, Vince Lombardi became the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Their record the previous year was 1-10-1, which was more than disappointing. They had five future Hall of Famers on the team. Their first year under Lombardi, they went 7-5, a real improvement. It was their first winning season since 1947. The next year, they made it to the championship game. This was before the Super Bowl against the Philadelphia Eagles. But the Green Bay Packers lost in the final seconds, even though they had the lead going into the fourth quarter, when the running back was tackled nine yards from the end zone. They were nine yards away from the championship. Well, the next year, when they got together for training camp in July, uh, they were thinking about the brutal loss. They had been all off-season. And now they were going to tweak the game, just improve things a little bit and those last nine yards and win the championship. But Lombardi had a different idea. And in um, a biography written of him, entitled When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, he took nothing for granted, the writer writes. He began a tradition of starting from scratch. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, This is a football. So let's start with that for us. What is the church? We're talking about the church and state. What is the church? The word that is used in the New Testament was not a religious term. Um, It came from the Greek verb ek kaleo, to call out. The noun is ekklesia, an assembly of people called together on a regular basis. In the New Testament, ecclesia came to indicate a congregation or church as the totality of Christians living and meeting in a particular locality or a larger geographical area, but not necessarily, not necessarily limited to one place, one meeting place. The community of believers was called out of the community, the larger human community, to worship God and to be signpost of his coming kingdom. The leadership of the church was to preach the word, to encourage obedience to God's word throughout the whole range of life's activities. The primary biblical understanding of church appears to be the local gathered people in a particular place. We find this in the various epistles in the New Testament written to the church, for example, in Corinth in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Colossae, in Thessalonica. But interestingly enough, 
to the churches in Galatia. Galatia was a province, not a city. And we know that there were churches at least in four cities, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. The church, in any case, I think in Corinth or elsewhere, was not simply one single congregation. I don't think there was one church in Corinth, but there were, in fact, house churches throughout the city. Um, In his letter to the Romans, Paul addresses them as to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. And then in the last chapter, as he has a long series of greetings, he writes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Seeming to indicate that there were churches all throughout Rome meeting in people's homes. That's what people did back then. But sadly, in our time, in the modern age, church has come to mean the building. And people are secondary if they're mentioned at all. I don't know if you've ever done, if you've ever gone to historic church buildings or cathedrals. Um, Guy and I, uh, one year, visited all the various missions that had been set up uh, in the 1700s, in the 18th century. Um, go to cathedrals in Europe and oftentimes people fail to realize people are still worshiping there okay it's a place of worship okay the building is not the church the people in fact are the church so the question then comes up the church what is it an organism is it a living organism or it is it an institution yes yes it is an organism, it is an institution. It is an institution that has a specifically assigned and given task of gathering the believers together for public worship, of preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and maintaining discipline among its members. More on this in a bit. It is also an organism. Consider what we read today in our promise of forgiveness. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It is an organism, a living thing. And the body of Christ is to be manifested in every field of endeavor, business, economics, labor, education, the arts, and of course, politics. Because politics is a part of what God has given us as a mandate This is what we are supposed to do. We are to have dominion. Politics matters to the body of Christ, the church, for at least three reasons. First of all, politics is a part of the cosmos that God brought into being. And he is now redeeming from sin. Secondly, God has called out to live our salvation, has called us to live out our salvation in the whole of life, not just this private part as the modern world would tell us. And thirdly, politics along with other activities subject to the ongoing contest among the competing idolatries. Okay, so what is the role of the institutional church? Better yet, what are the duties of church leaders? What are their responsibilities and preaching with preaching and politics? When and if the pastor or the teaching elder 
deals with political matters from the pulpit, there needs to be a recognition that he is not preaching to the state, he's preaching to the members of the congregation. The purpose of preaching is to instruct the congregation, to encourage them to find their place in the redemptive story, and to live this out in the whole of life. So as I stand here, I'm not preaching to the city of Los Angeles, not preaching to the state of California, to the United States, I'm preaching to you as the church, the people of God, the church on Melrose. The institutional church is much more than a refueling station. You need to get pumped up to make it through the week. It is a gathering in which we are confronted by the word of God. We are compelled to take stock of our own lives. We are to repent from our sins and we are to remain faithful to our callings. We need to find our place in the story of redemption. What has God called us for? What is our calling? What is our vocation? And how can we be obedient to God in that? The one leading or the one preaching should recognize that in presiding over worship and preaching each Sunday, he is forming disciples who will live out God's word during the week. Consider just two aspects of our worship even this day here in the church on Melrose. The opening response of singing, which Dave leads us. Because the Lord is my salvation, I will not fear. Because my confidence is in you, I will not fear. Because you are with me, I will not fear. For I am with you. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Should this not shape our thinking in the next six days, in the coming week, with regard to fear? Should we not say, because the Lord is our salvation, we will not fear? And then there's the prayer of confession and the promise of forgiveness. We read in the first chapter of 1 John, this is the message we have heard from you and declared to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This should shape our thinking, not only today, but through the rest of the week with regard to sin. We should not walk in darkness. We shouldn't claim to be the people of God and yet walk in darkness. But then having sinned and having failed, we should not be overwhelmed by that, but recognize that in confessing, we can have forgiveness. But let's be careful. We don't do this merely as individuals. We may fall into that trap, but we should not. That somehow I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to be salt and light in the world. In some sense, yes, God has put you where you are, that you can be salt and light. But we need to remember that we are part of a community, the church. And the church as a whole, not just as individuals, the church is to live out our calling, to live our faith 
with fear and trembling in the whole of life. So the church as an institution has a crucial role in equipping the body of Christ. Thirdly, there is a proper way for the institutional church to address political issues, particularly in a time of crisis. And the Lord willing, this is what we will look at next Sunday as we look toward a non-ideological alternative in politics. Now we come to our text. And in our text, Jesus is confronted by his enemies who are trying to trap him in a political matter. If you look in Matthew 22, uh, beginning in verse number 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Trying to butter him up. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? What is the trap? Well, the Jews are under Roman rule, which they hated. They were under an occupying uh, power. And if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then he would be accused of siding with the occupying forces. He would be a traitor to his own people. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, they could take him to the Roman authorities and said, this guy says you shouldn't pay taxes, you need to put him in jail. So what does Jesus answer? Verse 19, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. See, living when and where we do, this story may seem to point to the separation of church and state. Give to Caesar, that's the state, what he's supposed to have, and give to the church, God, what he's supposed to have. Okay. I think this misses the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. He refers to the coin. That's no coincidence, okay? That's no accident. This coin has an image on it. This coin has an inscription on it. Both were Caesar's. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He then turns and says to them, give to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image and inscription. What has God's image and inscription? We do. We're made in the image of God. We bear the image of God. And we've been given the mandate to have dominion. That's the inscription. And yet, again, living when and where we do, people say, oh, Caesar, state, God is church. Let's keep those things separate. Just a side note, I, I find it interesting that people want the church to stay out of politics, they want them to stay out of the state, and yet the state is more than willing to get involved in church matters. There are things which seek to replace the Creator, who want to tell us that there is a different inscription that is written on us. We have things that tell a different story than what God has 
told us in the revelation of himself. Like other aspects of creation, they have some good in them. They're not all bad. They have some good in them. And the good in them has become inflated beyond recognition. And it comes between us and God, and it becomes an idol. This happens to ideologies. It happens in politics. It happens in political systems. As we saw, John wrote the end of his epistle, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. We, as the people of God, the church of God, we are to keep ourselves from idols. I think I'm convinced we are to be involved in politics. We are, we are to recognize the idolatrous nature of things. We are to remember what is the true story and what is the real inscription that is written on us. The Lord willing, I hope to flesh this out a bit more next Sunday as we look at walking toward a non-ideological path. Not something that is idolatrous, but something that is biblical, something in which we can be obedient to God and having dominion. Let's pray together. Father, being human, oftentimes we take the path of least resistance. And so when we are told that the church will take care of certain matters and the state will take care of others, um, the church will stay out of our business and will give us the freedom to worship, perhaps even the freedom to evangelize. And we seem content with that. A new inscription has been engraved on us instead of the one that you gave back in Genesis 1. Rather than recognizing culture as a part of creation, we think in terms of nature and then maybe metaphysics, morality, things like that. We've lost sight of a holistic, you are the creator, this is your good creation. In spite of it being fallen, we bear your image in spite of the fact that we are fallen. And we have been given a mandate. We're to be people of culture, people who make things, who create things. This includes politics. But again, being broken as we are, that just seems like a tall order and, and, and maybe we should just let the state take care of those things and uh, we'll keep our participation to a minimum. May your spirit open our eyes to see that, yes, we do give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we are to give to you what is yours. We live in a time in which there seems to be great division in our country. It's not the first time. It may not be the last time. May we as your people, as this church, have a biblical understanding of things. 
May we begin at the beginning and open our eyes to see the idolatrous nature of ideologies and governments and politics. And by your grace, may we act as we should. I thank you for this first day of a new week, a day which we begin with worshiping you, and now we will walk through the world in the coming week. May we have a sense of your presence. May your spirit and your grace go with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so patient with us. And again, I ask, pour out your spirit on us. That may we, we may live out the truth of the gospel in every area of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.